Okay, we're live. We're live. What's Red up, Nets guys? Day. John Sentez here. Cutter Nation podcast. A little chilly this morning. I don't know why, but uh, no it big is deal. San Diego. What is going know, on? Right? Yeah, dude. I woke it up feels and I was like, like I got to put a February put a long sleeve on. You know. Uh, anyway, uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The podcast numbers have been going up tremendously. I appreciate everybody who's been following along and everybody subscribed. Uh, seems like YouTube is the best place where people are loving to go to watch it. But don't forget, it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, we're trying to align ourselves with Joe Rogan since he's going full Spotify in September, which is gangbusters. Um, really? Yeah, audio and video, all Spotify. Yeah. Only on Spotify? Only on Spotify. I had no idea. Yeah, gnarly. Why? He doesn't go into that. Uh, but I, don't, I can I don't, imagine... I don't, I, I don't need to like I, he has a bunch track, of issues but, but I just with started YouTube and like how they monetize his videos because if he says something they demonetize it and so he's just probably tired of getting demonetized and just move over to Spotify where he has just like they gave him probably the Titanic work of worth of money and said just do it right here do whatever you want well it's interesting because I hadn't listened to Spotify before. I know we're killing your intro us but whatever um, this this um he's a veteran the, yeah, yeah. Um, whatever. No, I, I, um, I just started using Spotify like last week because somebody was sharing playlists back and forth, and this is the first time I've listened to their ads, and their ads are way different than Pandora. It's really interesting how, like, yeah. Anyway, interesting. That's all I have to say. So sorry to kill it, John. You wanna? Well, this is Western Germain, guys. Mill City Thrilling yeah, from beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, he was on a couple weeks ago with Jamie Destache, like mustache. Never forget that again. Yep. Um, and uh, so anyway, they've been doing a project. I'll let kind of Wes uh, go about um, kind of getting you caught up, giving us a little cliff notes of what they've done. But um, before he does, I will say, and John, I don't even know if you know this, um, but this has basically put Wes at the top of the Moda Sleeve world. And um, I know he doesn't want to accept that, but he's in some really cool conversations right now. So um, for those of you that don't know, Wes will update you on what Moda Sleeve is, but this is some technology that, um, holy crap, right? So I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Wes take over, but this is, if you haven't seen it, go back and watch the, the other episode with him and Jamie, because both well, of them um, are working on this together and, and gave a great perspective on it. So. Oh, come on, Johnny. Come on, Donnie. Let's go. All right, Wes. Yeah. So I guess I'll start by saying I'm really uncomfortable with that, uh, what you just said. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that we, we're in the very early stages of understanding that this technology is going to be really important um, and, and kind of going down the rabbit holes that pop up along the way. So I think modus, modus sleeve or like the wearable tech that can measure arm stress is going to be super important in the future and we're just kind of diving into how to use that so to, to kind of catch everybody up and give a little recap of what we talked about the last time i was on basically jamie and i have been over the course of the past nine months to a year have been reworking interval throwing programs because of the way that we were having to use them with our athletes and the questions that came up along the way and in our evaluation of these programs and the learning of the technology with modus sleeve we we kind of landed on what we think is a better way to do things. So we mapped out a new program. And over the past nine weeks, I have been going to the park and throwing, essentially testing two different interval throwing programs. So one is the interval throwing program that you'll find if you go to the ASMI's website. 
and the other one is the one that we designed. So I've got them all mapped out and all we're basically doing is throwing these protocols and tracking one day workload, arm stress, acute to chronic workload ratio, and seeing like, do any of these programs or does either of these programs build workload in a more efficient way? Do they do it safer? Uh, and just kind of evaluating those things. Uh, and I guess as briefly as I can, I'll, I'll go into an explanation of what acute and chronic workload are. Just So basically, if you think of chronic workload as your arms fitness, it's 28 days. Like what is your average one day workload over 28 days? So what kind of fitness does your arm have? And acute workload is like what fatigue you've placed on your arm in the past nine days. So it's the average one day workload over the past nine days. And when you get the ratio and you divide the acute by the chronic, there have been studies that show that when you go over a 1.3 on that ratio, you're at an increased risk for injury. Not that you will definitely get injured, obviously, but just that the risk goes up. So we're kind of monitoring the AC ratio on these two throwing programs. So, so it'd be like normally I'm, you know, I have my routine and then all of a sudden it's playoffs and I get asked to throw three times in five days. Is that what we're talking about? That would spike the, yeah, the so, ratio and be that'd be higher than one three. Yeah. So I mean, depending on the volume that you throw, obviously, but that's that's something that could happen. Well, John's go. John's John's throwing three hundred pitches a, a game, so let's assume a high volume. Yeah. So well, so if he's throwing three hundred pitches a game and he does that throughout a season, his chronic workload, his fitness is going to be like built up to handle that. So he'll have a chronic workload of whatever that number is. But if he went from throwing three hundred pitches a game once a week to, okay, now he's going to throw 200 pitches a game three times a week, that would be a jump in the acute workload that the chronic workload isn't built up to handle. So you'll, you could see it at that end. What you'd actually, I think studies of, or like some research has shown that in the playoffs, what actually happens as games get more spread out is you see a drop in chronic workload because guys aren't throwing as often. And then the game comes and they don't have the fitness level to handle what's asked of them. So... On the other that's side, that's a good point because the uh, the travel days are definitely weird as it goes. Like especially if you go seven games, you know your five to seven thing. It's you see, I'm, I'm pretty sure, right? The strategy would say that you drop your fifth starter and you try to get back to number one as quick as possible, right? So interesting, very interesting uh, findings there, Mister Germain. Yeah, it's and on the other side of things, then you've got like the on ramping problem, which is what we're going to see coming up here where like if you come in if if for example if minnesota decides we're going to start summer ball on june 1st and today's may 20th or whatever it is like that's not a very big window to build up chronic workload so if you haven't been throwing if your if your fitness isn't where it's supposed to be you can't just hop in and start throwing in a game the way you want to because you're going to see a huge acute spike or acute to chronic workload ratio spike and presumably be at higher risk for injury so and, and I think just in general that athletes aren't super good at gauging how much work they've been doing. So it, it'll be interesting I would, to see. I, would, I will offer for in, in, in defense of the athlete, I don't know how many coaches are good at asking questions that would allow the, the athlete to develop that skill set. You know, that's one of the things that we really have leaned into hard is just like, this isn't about, you know, don't point fingers. Let's just have a conversation here. So this is cool because – you know, we, we've at Cutter Nation, we've been like, one of the simplest things we have is like, you know, one to 10, 10 being terrible, how much pain are you in? And like the amount of people that walk in and are like three, 
what are you talking about? You just walked in the door yeah. three, you know, yeah. and just, they don't get asked these questions, you know, like they, they don't show up to practice and, and say, Hey, you know, this is where I'm at. I'm at a two out of 10 today, or I'm at a five out of 10 today. It's just like, why? Hey, yeah. Anyway, you know, you know, what we're coming yeah. From. Yeah. I think asking the questions is huge. And then as much as we can providing tools or providing a way for them to like, keep track of these things, like even something as simple as, you know, Hey, I threw today. Okay. How much? Well, I threw, I don't know, a hundred throws. Okay. At what RPE? Like that's a way to track workload. It's not rate as, of perceived effort. Right. It's, and it's not nearly as good as like having an actual torque metric, but it's better than nothing. And it can enter, yeah. like you said, it can bring athletes into these conversations, but, um, so yeah. we'll obviously have a lot of time to like get to the conclusions and go out to that. Can you actually go into a little bit more of the process? Because I, what I want people to understand is like, the biggest reason why what Weston is doing is like the biggest reason it's such a significant thing is because there's so much time like, and, and if this wasn't happening, we've talked about, you know, with, with the virus being here, like this is something that is really hard to set aside time to do it the right way. And you're doing it the right way. So talk a little bit more about the process and how vigorous it is. Yeah. So like to your point, Really, if, if the past nine weeks we had been in season, there's basically no way that I'm able to throw these protocols and document the process the way that I've been able to. Um, so this has been a silver lining, I guess, for, for me personally, and that it's given me an opportunity to kind of dive down this rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I basically, I throw every day, it seems. There are some days where the protocols line up where they're both scheduled off. So I'm, you know, but for the most part, because I'm throwing two different protocols on two different schedules, there's throwing on every day, um, you know, walk over to the park, throw, come back, record the data, look at the data, make some notes for, you know, I've been doing the, the weekly review blog posts. Uh, so I, I make notes along the way so that when I type those up, I've got some things to, to touch on. And then along the way, like this past week, for example, I found that there was another like a new topic to go down that just kind of cropped up because halfway through my throwing session on, I don't know, we'll call it Monday, I had soreness in my uh, oblique area and I had to stop throwing. So I had to think about like, how does this program adjust? How does, how would the other programs adjust? And so then I end up writing a blog post about that because it sends me down a rabbit hole and I, you know, put the thoughts on paper. So, so specifically you're talking about like having a bad day in the middle of return to throw. Right. Yeah. So, so like a, like for a traditional throwing program, let's say it's like, okay, today is the day I need to throw 50 throws at 120 feet. Okay. So what happens if I get to throw 25 and I feel something that's no good? Like yeah. my elbow, I've got sharp happens pain, all the time. Whatever, whatever. Yeah. Whatever it is. Um, okay. So now the, the protocol says stop throwing and don't throw until the pain stops which makes sense like if you're in a good setting you'd be able to go get treatment like manual therapy whatever you you know and eventually you're pain free you can throw again maybe that's one day maybe it's three but then the instructions in a traditional throwing program say go back to the last step and continue from there and it doesn't really adjust anything else but that's wait like just in general they just say like there's no backtracking or like like a delay like of we're, the curve for it to come back up or right we're right we're week three go back to week one well so it'll be like at that point let's just say you're in step 10. so step 10 is 50 throws at 120 feet and they say okay you had soreness you weren't able to do this let's go back to step nine which is 25 throws at 120 feet and continue from there 
So you'll, you'll like take two or three days off and then you'll go back to that step and continue. But what we found when you're looking at one day workloads and when you're looking at chronic workload, like if you take three days off or four days off because you were sore, that is a significant change in chronic workload. It's a, and, and the program doesn't adjust to it at all. So what happens is over the next three weeks, you're, you're at a spiked AC ratio for three weeks until it finally balances out because of the 28 day window. So that's what a traditional pro throwing program would do. But with ours, because ours is based not on throw count, but one day workload, you say, okay, well, you, you made 25 throws, you were going for 50. What was your workload today? You type that in and you type in zeros for the next however many days that you're out. And then you just adjust the program. You say, okay, well, the next time out, you're gonna throw at whatever intensity you were supposed to throw at, but you're gonna make fewer throws. And we're gonna adjust the one day workload to gradually get you back up in a safe way because we because you can do that because you're not guessing about workload. Um, I was, this just popped in my head and I know this sounds a little different than the first time, but it's like, this is why I was suggesting like, what if you just threw max effort once every time you threw? And I know that there are faults in that idea, but the like where I was coming from was, I think that the volume is the thing that people are so scared to manage. And like, um, and maybe I'm saying that wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I should be saying the intensity is what they're trying to manage. Um, but anyway, it's just these simple things where I feel like, could be both. you know, sure. And, I, and I, what I'm thinking about is the, the traditional practice where the pitchers or whoever is supposed to go throw for X amount of time. And it's like, I'm you, me stopping before that is not going to look good. And it's, that's not the point. Like there should be uh, you know, an environment where, um, yeah, I just don't, I don't have that. You know, you go back to, you know, all of our injuries. I don't know, Wes, have you, you haven't really had significant injuries. Yeah, um, but I don't but throw like, very hard. Yeah. Like, so that's, when that's why I, I knew you were going to say that, but yeah, anyway. Um, but you also throw too. a billion, billion throws like Wes can throw today and then three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but, but that's what it was is I was, I was, um, as a sophomore, I was literally scared to tell somebody that I was feeling discomfort, you know, cause I didn't want that to affect my playing time. I didn't want that to like, yeah, it's just, it's such a psychological game. So anyway, that just a side note, cause that's the reality. This is my story is not unique. Right. And, and you, I mean, it goes back to like asking the athletes the right questions and, and then giving the athletes some authority over what they're doing. Um, so, and not to keep talking about like the yeah, specific please. program that we built up, but like please. in a traditional interval throwing program, it's step nine, step 10, step 11, and they just build in volume or intensity along the way. And there's never, like there are off days, they throw every other day. But for example, in our program, you might throw, like right now I'm throwing at 90% of previous max velocity and I'm throwing five days a week, but I'm only throwing hard twice a week. And my other days of throwing, I don't even take a radar gun. I just go out and I lob the ball until I hit my workload for the day. It's night. It's like completely self-regulated. So it gives me that option to just do whatever feels right for my arm and rest. And, you know, and if there's a day where I want to push it, I can a little bit, but it's, it's on the athlete to base it on how they feel and let them start to get to know their arm and not only what their arm can handle, but what their arm wants and needs. Because I think a lot of athletes are used to doing whatever their arm can handle on a given day and not what's you know best for their arm. That's an interesting point. Um, 
the our concept of 20 percent day i'm pretty sure you're familiar with it yep. um i feel like that you're shedding some light on that idea of what we've been talking about with that and it might actually be way more valuable than what people are anticipating so i'm really excited to see what research you've gotten from from that because it's you know i don't even know um cast do you remember where we came up with that or or where i came up with that or or how it came to fruition I know because you had it by the time I came, but it, you know, not to not to take anything away from you. I, I like that. You know, one of the things that kids always want to say is I'll ask them, you know, whether it's in person or remote training, what, what percent are we on today? 100 percent, 20 percent, 50 percent. And I mean, even some of our veterans will be like 75 percent. I'm like, well, that's not an option. You just have to commit to the idea. So these are like um, I think that Cressy does like a high intensity, medium intensity, low intensity. Driveline calls them different hybrid A, hybrid B kind of things. So like typically everybody has some sort of version of this. Um, but, you know, just to speak to what you're trying to say, John, is like, I don't think most of our people don't come to us at 20%, right? So when we're doing in-person training, they don't see the value in these days. And one of the things that I've tried to harp on is like, you cannot um, d decide, oh, I threw yesterday in a game. I'm canceling my training session today. It's like, no, these are the ways that like, this is something that I've said specifically. The reason why you want to come to Cutter Nation on these 20% days is because most people are not giving that kind of information, right? So when Wes, you're bringing this up, like this, is, most people aren't purposely doing that. You already alluded to it. So it's just like, yeah, anyway, this is, this is cool that you're putting numbers to it. Well, and to I your point, we, go ahead, go ahead, Wes. To your point about 75% not being an option, like the, the increments that you guys give are great because there have been studies that show that like athletes aren't good at matching their RPE with what is actually happening. And what you'll actually see if you ask somebody to throw at 75% is you're much likely, it's much more likely that they're going to expose themselves to like 90% of torque rather than 75. So giving them 50, knowing you might get 65 and giving them 20, knowing you might get 40 or 45, it, like that's, that's really smart. And 20 sounds low to people, but if I try to throw 20, I'm not gonna throw 20. I'm gonna be yeah. somewhere, you know, around or just below 50. So, but if you tell a kid to go have an 85% day, that's a 100% day. 100%, I totally agree. It's, it's, uh, why, it's one of the main reasons um, that I thought of the radar gun um, on all days of throwing for guys that, that gives them yeah. way better of a feedback. Um, but I didn't know what it was going to do. I didn't realize how much it was going to carry into our program like that, you know, because like you're saying, most of the time you look at top end velos um, and now we set speed limits on guys all the time. You know, when we ask them, what, what's your day, you know, and the college guys love it, hate it. But if I go, if you throw a ball over 75 or 80 today, you're done, yep. you know, and they're like, oh, but I feel good. I'm like, that's not the point. Yeah, I don't, I don't care. Yeah, it's yeah. That's uh, I, I thought of it's huge. Well, I just just psychologically, I think about like, um, you know, you guys know I listen to a ton of Jordan Peterson, and he was talking about how if you at the age of like four or five haven't learned how to um, how, uh, delay gratification, your life is going to be so much harder. And that's <laughs> like that's literally what we're talking about right now is like seeing your future self and seeing the community that you are, I love that he says that. So like, you are not one person, you are a community of who you have been and who you are going to be. And and that um, when we're starting to talk about human performance, you really have to think about your future self. You know, you were alluding to 
you need four weeks to simply establish a baseline of what chronic workload is. You know, and so when John, you know, I know that he's posted this a lot, you know, it takes six weeks to get your arm in shape, like at minimum, at minimum. And then you think about the, you know, oh. Yeah, no, I mean, so you can, it depends. This is another question that we're trying to grapple with is like, what is in shape? Like how much workload do you need to be able to handle for you to be considered in shape? And like a healthy arm returning, six weeks, you're way further along than somebody that's just coming out post-op and just getting out of the physical therapist's office because you can start at a higher workload um, but and, and, or in a higher intensity. But like, what is, what is in shape? What does that athlete need to be able to do? And that's, that's something that we're kind of figuring out with like our chronic workload. So for example, a starting pitcher, I think starting pitcher in the MLB, like average chronic workload is around 15. Okay. But like their return, you can return to competition before you're at 15. So what is that number? Like you don't have to be able to throw five innings, innings in a game before you can return to throw and trying to figure out what that number is. And I think that that number is going to be different by guy, by position, by coach, like coach's preference when they want to use a guy in a game. So, but, but like yeah, six some weeks, some you can have psychos like me. Like that's when you said that I resonated of like my best season I ever had was when I was down in Mochi's, but I was, a, I was a closer. I was a six, seven, eight, nine starter. And it was just like the whole season, you know, start off as a closer, end up as a um, the eighth inning guy, and then ended up needed we needed more help first out of the pen in situations, and then the number five guy goes down, and then turn into a starter for a month, basically have five starts, come back to the pen, you know, and and looking at the different, um, I, I I don't know how I did it to be honest with you. Like, right. well, think about what Vance has told us too. You know, tell him, yeah. tell him what Vance has talked about. Go ahead. Which part are you talking about? Well, so, so like Vance was one of like a premier starter, right? He's on the, one of the best. He's he's on the best Phillies team that ever existed in 2011, right? And so he's like fifth, sixth starter, one of the best teams ever. And then as he gets away from the Phillies, he comes over to Minnesota. He's the opening day starter. And then it just was like lack of information, you know, old school ideas. He shortens his stride, like he does all of these things to compensate for his lack of being in shape. And then what made him you know, stay in the game as long as possible was when he was in Baltimore, he was like, I had no idea if I was going to throw. I had no idea if I was going to be in the game. So what I got good at was being ready at all times. I need a spot start. I needed to come in a relief. And like, I can't even imagine. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, I can't imagine because this is how, think about that. Think of the amount of dollars that are attached to this idea. How the hell are you ever going to filter what you actually think? Right, you're you're always going to be pushing for that. I did it at D three, right? I did it at D three. You want me to close and start game two? Sweet, love it. Great. And then you want me to close on Tuesday? Of course, you know. Um, and so it's 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 interesting that you know it's obviously one thing to hear it at the amateur level, but then to hear how big leaguers like how challenging that must be. Do you know what I mean? And frick the stress and the driving and the, or the flying and the whole thing, just different level. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, and it's it's an even it's hard to navigate on its own, and I think that something that like a Moda sensor can do is at least provide some sort of information, right? Like some guidance as to what your arm needs on a given day. Because I I would imagine that having never been a relief pitcher, like navigating that would be very difficult. Knowing like okay, maybe I don't throw today, 
but like I need to throw some amount or maybe I think I'm going to get into a game today so I don't overdo it then I don't get in well now your one day workload is low but you needed to accumulate some work to keep your chronic workload up and like it's a very complicated thing and and I think it's even more complicated if you don't have any actual inform like any data if you're just kind of guessing and going by feel um think about but, like the little leaguers and the younger guys um that don't get and they don't get any notice right and like it's one of the things that I, I try to tell parents all the time to educate your coaches i'm like it is not fair for you to not tell the kid until 7 15 that he's starting at eight o'clock in the morning on saturday that he has the first game right you don't even know what the kid's emotional state is you have no idea you know what if he was sleeping on his shoulder in the back of the van and he's got a you know a kink in his neck yeah. And, you know, and he needs a couple hours to get the, you know, the, the stiffness out, you know, so it, it's well, and what, job. what I've always said with the, with the younger players is this is why I get so jacked up about youth coaching is like, there is zero reason why you can't make this happen. Do you know how easy it would be to take 13, you know, 10 year olds and say, you're pitching on Monday, you're pitching on Tuesday, you're pitching on Wednesday. And then you other people, you're relief pitchers and you're going to be, you know, so Johnny, you, Johnny, Tim, and, you know, Farrell, I don't know who that is, but those three guys make up names. Um, he, they, they are going to be in relief on Monday and do it. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, not based on the game. What are we talking about? Based on the score of a little league game? Like, I don't even care if you're in the little league world series. Because if you coach like that, where you're telling them where they are and you're at the Little League World Series, you're not going to change it now. Oh, we got to playoffs. Let's change everything that we're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I, I would say that a, re, a reasonable way to avoid having high pitch counts or asking too much of a, a 10, 11, 12 year old pitcher would be to have everybody on your team pitch. And like and not everybody's going to be great. But guess what? They're 10, 11 and 12. And like. I don't know. I was I was six foot when I was 12 years old, but I had a buddy who was like five foot one and he's taller than me. Now. Like, you don't know who's going to do what as they get older and go into high school. Like, yeah. teach them yeah. all how to pitch. Like, I, I, Gene I, I, Larkin was five nine as a senior in high school. Five nine, a point guard. He's six four. Like, right. yeah. So imagine him at 10 years old. They probably weren't looking. This is like this is the guy I need to teach well, how to pitch. Like <laughs> he was he was. Yeah. He was actually the best guy, but anyway. Well, but you know thing. what I mean. Like I know that, exactly that happens. Mean. That happens a lot where people get pigeonholed at a young age, and it's like you don't know. Teach these kids how to do everything, and you might lose some little league games. But like, John was just talking to the Pitch Logic guy, episode eighty-one. Who, what's his name again? Or Stephen Security? Yeah, and and he was talking about so he with Pitch Logic um, taught himself how to throw a, a true twelve-six curveball like a hundred percent spin efficiency, straight top spin. And, but he was just talking about when he was in little league, he's like, yeah, I only played one year of baseball because I was last in the order and they put me out in the outfield and like other kids, just like the way that they were coached, you know, and some things came a little bit more uh, natural to them. You know, they took the coaching way better. And I just like the coaching didn't make sense to me. It was not appropriate for where I was at. Um, and, and he's a huge fan. You know, and that's and that's so so tough because I mean, think about there's just so many things that kids never develop until way later, and this is like accepted. And then all of a sudden, we get into the sports world and we like project these weird things onto these kids, where it's like, hey, you should know music theory by the age of ten. What really? 
like, and that's kind of the things that we're asking some of these young athletes is like, Hey, you don't know how to catch a fly ball at 10. Like you, you got to figure it out. What that's, that's just not, that's just not how it works. So, but at the same time, I don't mean to, you know, I was talking to Raj, uh, the synapse guy the other night and like, I think I'm going to make a concerted effort to do this is like, this isn't about people being bad people. This is simply that this is, this industry is like for, for many, many reasons has, has not had, has not had some of the things that would allow these things to happen sooner and faster. Right. And so we just have to like, take it for what it is and not crap on each other and just continue to have conversations like this. So, I mean, I'm only saying this out loud. So people understand that if, if, you know, if I am being critical of anybody, it's just, it's more because I feel bad for the athletes. You know, I think about the kids that are trying as hard as they possibly can show up and do all the right things. And they aren't given opportunities because youth coaches don't get paid. You know, youth coaches don't aren't in a position to be able to like be experts in this and the implications are pretty big, but Anyway, I'll jump off that. Um, I want to come back to, I, I don't know. Um, Sounded like a little personal message there. <laughs> well, no, it's it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's, I want to make sure that we're differentiating, like the problems are not personal to the the humans, right? These are like problems that well, exist I'm because. to you, like it's a good thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, oh, same, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I say w everything that we put in the gym is what I wish I had when I was 12. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. I don't, I don't know of another way, like the, the, the funny thing with that too is, is, um, you know, playing Call of Duty and the history of like how Call of Duty's come in, right? The joke that one of my best friends who was way better than I was at, at that game was he'd always be like, it doesn't matter how good you are. There's some 12 year old in somewhere in part of the world who's got way more time than you ever will to become good at this game. And he, that's what he's going to do. And like, I think that that idea and like allowing kids to go into that is and and safely is probably what one of the main things excites me about what Weston's study is because if we can start teaching these kids better programming and understanding what true recovery or active rest throwing um, is which really was what a 20 percent day is in my opinion um you know I, I it's it's way too beneficial you know so all this tech the pitch logic the moda sleeve the rapsodo the radar gun the you know, all the slow motion cameras, all the stuff comes down to hacking in the best possible way that we can. You know, how can we just fix whatever issues, you know, uh, present themselves and can we predict issues that are coming in the future? I have um, an interesting thing. Um, so last night I was doing, I did remote training with uh, Tandy. And um, so Ryan is, John brings him up all the time because Ryan is one of the most talented young players that I've ever seen. And um, so last night, John has been working a lot with him on pitches and sequencing. And last night um, I was working on movement with him and a little bit of it was like technology was struggling. It was harder for him to hear me, blah, blah, blah. But I, I talked to his mom afterward because I'm like, listen, I want you to make sure I want to make sure that the message was heard from your side. Right. Because this is something that we're going to continue to build on. And it, it seemed a little bit confusing. But this is this is the, the point. So she, I told her, I go, the funny thing is, is in the middle of the session, I had suggested he do something. And he goes, Cass, my arm feels like it's dragging when I do that. And I go, Nicole your kid just gave and I'm like and then he asked me just like a re really really smart question and i'm like your kid just asked me a college level question and i don't know how to answer it in a 10 year old's vernacular 
right? I'm like, I actually, if you would have asked me a 10 year old question, I know how to answer that in a 10 year old's voice. But when you ask me a question that well, like what 10 year old knows that his arm drags, you know? And so I told her, I'm like, listen, your kid's awareness is off the charts. I don't know people that have the awareness of that, but also I need a little help from mom here because I don't know how to speak his language all the time. Cause I'm like, well, it's just, it's really, really hard. So anyway, I won't, I won't get further into that, but it's, man, kids are so smart and so complicated and man, it's, it's a scary world. So if you can just say, Hey, Tandy, like, look, you're, you're that throw, even though you felt like your arm was dragging, well, the modus sleeve number says that that was just as that was the same as all the other ones. It felt funny. Um, it can just help inform them. So uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, just thinking just out loud piece, here. It's another piece of the puzzle for sure. Yeah. So, okay. What, um, what else? I was just going to say, let's get into the, um, the meat of, of the study here. Uh, maybe quick sum it up uh, real fast and then get us yeah. to where we're at. Yeah. So some things that we learned basically from week three to week nine. So just in week three, when we talked uh, beginning of April, I was throwing 55% of my max velocity. I'm up to 90% in our protocol. Um, I was throwing 75 feet in the the traditional interval throwing program. And now I'm like, it has me prescribed as throwing 60 throws off of a mound at 50%. Um, so that's just kind of how everything has progressed. Uh, basically some, some things that we learned or like were kind of confirmed over the past six weeks, using throw counts and distance for intensity is, is pretty unpredictable. So if you go out and throw like this past couple of days, I had to throw 45 throws at 50% RPE. These are like pitching mechanic throws. My workload per day has fluctuated wildly because like we mentioned earlier, athletes aren't very good at predicting perceived effort. So my 50% on Monday feels different or is different than what I thought was 50% on Saturday. And the same thing at 120 feet. And then even worse, it's between athletes. You can't really predict what their torque exposure is going to be. So using just throw counts and distances for intensity is unpredictable. And using one day workload and a miles per hour reading kind of makes that more predictable. So you can know how you're going to build up workload over time. Uh, which is what our, our program uses. Uh, essentially, the traditional throwing programs also are inefficient in terms of building fitness. So at the same amount of weeks of throwing, the chronic fitness that our program has built up is basically more than double. And because of the rate that it goes up, and ours is going to go up you know, at a safe 1.3 ACR ratio throughout the rest of the, the program, like we're going to end up significantly higher on chronic workload without ever spiking our ratio. Yeah. So it's just going to be more efficient and it's going to be safer overall. And, and that's on the program we're testing. Since I started testing, I actually have a, I'm managing a return to throw for an athlete who's returning from a full Tommy John surgery and in putting together his protocol, I found there was a more efficient way to map out and build chronic workload starting from a less like a lower velocity and never spiking AC ratio. So there's an even more efficient way than what I'm testing. And right now what I'm testing is better than the traditional protocol in kind of that arena. Dude, so, that's exciting. It Talk is exciting. more about that guy because he's a catcher too. Yeah. So I don't want to get into too many details, just it's early stages and he's, he's working through some of the phases, but we're, we're three weeks in and he is, a, he's returning as a catcher and, 
catchers generally return at a little bit less, like return to previous performance at a lower um, success rate than pitchers. And so we're just making sure like his chronic workload needs are going to be different than a pitcher's, for example, that he's actually going to need a bit more chronic workload probably just because of the demands if he's going to be an everyday type of catcher. Uh, so we're, we built the program around that. And also, if you think about when you look at this from a workload standpoint, a starting pitcher has to be able to have one really high workload day every week. But a catcher needs to be able to have like needs to be able to tolerate the same workload on multiple days in a row. So when you're building a program out and you can individualize it based on specific like position needs and, and things like that, you can you can make it a lot more individualized in addition to being more adjustable, as we mentioned with the injuries. That's interesting because one could argue that the catcher might have to have a stronger arm than a pitcher. You know, yeah, yeah you were saying guy, that I was a guy that's pulling like 150 games. You got to get it back to the guy, right? Yeah. Every, you're catching pens, you're doing all sorts of stuff. And if you think about like, this is the way I thought about it when I heard that number is that on most teams that I've ever been around, the catcher is more closely trained like a second baseman, arm strength and arm conditioning wise than he is to a pitcher, but his demands probably exceed that of a pitcher. So they're playing catch with the infielders who are getting warm to take an infield, but really they should be on like a regimented throwing program where they're building chronic workload for a long portion of the year and, and getting ready for that season. And I think to me, it makes sense that they return at a lower rate because they probably get returned to comp like they get in their return to play. And then they go back to playing catch with the infielders and they need a very regimented program that's more demanding than that of a pitcher in most cases. Sounds At like least you got I, I mean, that's my areas thought. to go into some studies, huh? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot to learn. That's for sure. A little tangent on um, just like, okay, so one thing, because I've had, I've had some conversations about like infielders and um, position players that are not well, just infielders in general, right? Um, how like, especially um, younger players and their parents have a hard time understanding why you know, you train a shortstop like we train our pitchers. And I think um, one thing that I haven't really said is the infielder has to make throws off balance, weird angles. Like those are the things that to your point, Wes, like that's actually higher percentage of their throws than I think people realize. Like most of the throws that they make are less than ideal um, because that's what they're supposed to be good at. And so they never really make these, like, how many infielders actually long toss like a pitcher? How many infielders, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that is, it's obviously becoming more common, but it's really interesting because you almost shouldn't even, like, if I could put it on a, you know, what you are allowed to do based on your fitness, right? You shouldn't be making these low arm slot throws, these weird off balance throws until you've established that you can like, you've earned that is what I'm trying to say, you know? And like, this is, this is, this is cool in that. Um, yeah. I don't know what else to say. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud as far as like um, how they've been trained and how it, it's so backwards, it, you know, no matter how you look at it. So it's, it's just interesting. I, th I think it's more interesting than anything that like, we don't know what chronic workload a shortstop should have. It's pro like it probably doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be that of a starting pitcher like they're not making that many throws in a game. They are making some like more athletic throws or more off balance throws, but like that's something that we should probably have an answer to. I know that the like the arm injuries are more of an issue with pitchers and catchers, but it's not like they don't exist among other positions. 
And if you could objectively condition all of your positions to have the work, like the chronic workload that they need for to do what they need to do, like that seems like something that is desirable. Seems like something coaches should be aiming for. It makes me think about like when I was watching college athletes or even the pro guys, when I was watching the guys who were, um, who had strong arms, right? Like it seemed, seemed to me that the college guys that I played with, the infielders, I, I didn't have a guy who had a cannon. And I did notice that that guy's long toss ability was just wasn't there. And, and looking at the protocols of what our coaches were doing, none of our infielders went beyond 120 feet, right? And so it, it never made sense to me because a shortstop might make a 200 to, let's just be conservative, two to 200 foot, 30 foot throw, you know, on a relay from the outfield to home plate, maybe, right? It's going to be a, that, that to me, maybe the shortstop throwing to third base or the shortstop throwing home might be the longest throw that guy's going to make, maybe in the hole or something also to first right. base. Right. But even then, that's relative. Like we're within that window, right? That, that range. And I never understood why you wouldn't build up your arm strength beyond that distance, right? And, and, and build, or what you would say, build up the chronic workload so you can handle it, right? I always called it elasticity or, or arm endurance. Um, so it, it's interesting the language that you're using with it too, because it's, it's a, there's a learning curve to it. Yeah, and well, and I think to your point, there's like a couple issues there with the way that a shortstop maybe plays catch, because I would, I think that the arm strength issue would go more towards like, what else are you doing for your arm? Because like pitchers have, they're doing all sorts of, you know, they're doing the J bands, they're doing recovery, they're doing, and they're like trying to get their, they're, they're getting their rotator cuff stronger. Like the, the thing that makes a pitcher's arm stronger isn't throwing to 200 feet. Like that's building endurance within their arm, but like they're actually doing strengthening work targeted for their shoulder. Whereas like a lot of position players, it's get warm so you can play catch and then we can take an in and out. It's sure. not, you know, it's not, we, nobody's trying to throw 90 from shortstop, even though they should be, they're not working towards that. Uh, but, but they probably should be, they should be doing shoulder strengthening stuff because arm strength plays at basically every position. Uh, yeah, and it's just, and it's only, have... only trained at a couple. So. That's a, that's a great point. It, it, um, and I will say like guys, most for, for the record, most, in, when you talked about most infielders, outfielders, like not actually, um, like they, they throw hurt all the time. I, I would say like 50% of the shorts that I've ever had, like, Hey man, the great throw at short, uh, you know, great throw across the infield. Yeah. It killed me. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the, that's funny that you said that one of the best short stops I had was my sophomore year in college and he charged everything and was just underneath it, flip it to first base. Like he used unreal glove dive in the hole. Everything was just like from the hip, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's just interesting. And, and that actually like, so that's kind of what we've learned since then. And then we still have like more things keep coming up, right? Like every time we go out and throw another, another issue pops up or another question pops up um, with the traditional throwing protocol, just transitioning to us being on the, like prescribing mound throws, which they prescribe at 50% to start it. It's, we're kind of thinking about, okay, when, when would we want in our program, when would we want an athlete to be on the mound? And I'd be curious to know, because this, it tends to vary from pitching coach to pitching coach and like what people are comfortable with, but I'd be curious to know what you guys' thoughts are of like, if somebody was returning to throw, is there a percentage level or like, where, when would you want them to be on a mound? Um, I'll, I go, I guess I'll go first. Um, 
especially since my history and my arm, one of the things that I wanted to do as quickly as possible was get on the mound. But I didn't know, you know, like like what the question you're asking, I had no clue when to go. So I kind of came up with this, you know, distance thing, which is a little 90 mile an hour formula-ish, but it was basically like, you know, can I throw 100 yards, right? If I can throw it 100 yards, I felt like my arm strength, everything getting to that point um, allows me to build all of the, you know, you go through those up and downs, whether you get tendonitis or, or you know, you need to build up the strength, the patterning, whatever's going on. I feel like it just exposes too much with the throwing because obviously if you're pronating or supinating through release and you don't realize it, then the farther you get away, the worse those misses are going to be, right? So for me, it was just a comfortable thing. Um, time frame wise to what you're saying, um, the 50% on the mound thing just doesn't make sense to me. I, I never really understand it. It, it sounds um, confusing of an idea. You know, like what you mean, you want me to get on this mound, lift my leg like I've done my whole life and then just like not throw it how I think my brain needs to do it. So like, I just feel like that's too much. There's too much that could go wrong as soon as you get an athlete tentative on the mound. So like I would, I would much rather our guys be able to like really let go of a shuffle fire, whether it was long toss or on a line um, to someone and, and see how they reacted a couple days later before I would be like, Hey, that's, Cause I feel like a shuffle fire and a pitch feel the same as far as like yeah. what goes through the body, you know? Um, and then having a little bit more momentum um, to me feels safer also with that. So, you know, I think everybody's different on that. We, we have a good story with one of our guys coming back from TJ who went from like 75 or 74 all the way up to 93 on shuffle fires. And he was like 12 months out, but it was a big fear thing. He went one mile an hour at a time. And he was like, Dude, I might, you know, they only say I'm going to have like 20 throws a day. I go, listen to your arm. Your arm will tell you. Your arm will tell you. If you reach back and go a little bit more and then it was cool, like he started freaking out. And he was like, oh, okay, 85. Cool. And I'm like, you, yes. if you can get 86, right? And so you could see when he would think about it, it would drop. He would go down to like, you know, 83, 82 or something. But when, when he would think about like what he was doing, it was a completely different kid. And then he got all the way to 93 and then, you know, from from that moment on, he never looked back uh, from the mound or anything. You know. So did was he on the mound during that, or did he wait until he was like throwing as hard as he could before he transitioned? So he was doing he was doing the traditional throwing protocols outside of us with his pitching coach doing his on the mound work on um, short. We we ended up having him do short box instead of uh, yeah. you know full distance. And so once he went to short box, he said he felt like the timing was better. He was able to do what he wanted to do. Um, but from that day after that, I was like, bro, you're fine. Like let yourself recover, do all your stuff, hop on the mound after that, start small, build up your, um, I can't wait to say this chronic workload now. Now I get to say that. Thank you. Weston. Right. Um, thank you for educating everybody on yeah. the acute situation. I felt like that was like geometry all over again, by the way. Like, right. You got yeah. I'm like, oh man, proximal. Ugh. There's formulas and everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I would, I would say that I don't know what that time frame is. Right. So I'm interested right. to follow I, along with what you're saying. I, I think the time frame is like, is less important than, because it's going to be different for everybody. Right. Like there's going to be different hiccups for people along the way, but I think it's just like, when are you comfortable putting a guy in the mound? And it sounds like you lean towards the side of, 
I want them to feel bulletproof. Like I want them to feel like they can throw the crap out of it before they get up on the mound because I don't want them moving at sub max speeds on the mound, which like I totally like I get that. And I think that that's like I think that that makes good sense. Cass, do you feel like do you feel similarly or have a different thought before I move on to like the other yeah, side of it? So I think. Yeah, I totally agree with everything. I'll just make one comment on on the mountain piece is I make this comment all the time about John. And this isn't to blow smoke up his butt, but like he is one of the best low effort throwers I have ever seen, right? And so when John, um, how do I want to say it? When he modifies the way that he throws to not throw it as hard, he does it um, by like basically chopping his knees off. Right. And so when you just like take away the ability to stride out, now you're just timing the feet and the hands and the upper half can be exactly the same. So to John's point is like when you see guys get up on the mound, what they typically do is they do their full tempo wind up leg kick from stretch or wind up and then they're forced to decel. So I really do not see a lot of um, athletes at any level. And I might even suggest that it's worse the higher you go because these guys don't have to care about their low effort throws because they can just turn it on, you know? And so you take a guy like that and he's hurt and then he has to come back or just in general, right? They're actually working in really poor, inefficient patterns in these low effort throws, you know? And then they think that that's normal. You know, so really this all comes down to, you know, and apparently I haven't watched the Michael Jordan thing yet, but I know that he alluded to feel versus real. And I always talked about this as the cognitive dissonance, right? Like you, what John? Oh, I was just going to say, I, there was a piece of my, of the story from Michael Jordan. I need to go into because it, it, I got it. It was really, yeah, so, it was really So, and I've said this, Wesson, you know, I think you know, like it too. did you watch it? Wesson? Have you seen it? I'm like four episodes in. Oh, well, I'm going to ruin the last. That's episode. fine. I know how it but, ends. Yeah, <laughs> you were there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's I, I've said my piece. You get it. Yeah. So I think it's there's so I'm agreeing with you guys. I'm agreeing yeah. with you guys. I, well, just for the sake of the, and this is why this is why we're grappling with this. Right. Because that's that train of thought is prevalent that like I want. I want a guy to feel bulletproof. And when he's on the mound, I want him to be throwing hundred percent because I don't want to ingrain slow patterns on the mound. Um, and I think the reason that the transition to the mound happens when it does and happens at the percent that it does in the traditional interval throwing programs is because there was this belief that throwing from the mound was more stressful. And one there of my been, questions. That was one of my yeah, questions. So I don't have, because I haven't had access to a mound, like I can't compare my data to it, but there've been much more official studies done on it. Um, Slinker, uh, did a study where basically they compared throwing off of a mound to flat ground throwing. And they found that throwing on a mound is less stressful than throwing on flat ground. Basically is if you can control for velocity, throwing on a mound is less stressful. So you don't have to wait until they can handle all this stress to put them on a mound because it's not any more stressful. So if it's not more stressful, why wait? If, if they can get on the mound and start, and I'm not saying with pitching mechanics necessarily, because I don't want anybody doing pitching mechanics at 20%, but why not, why not play catch off of a mound when you're throwing 40%? Why not get used to the slope of the mound? If, especially, obviously only if you're a pitcher, but like if my job is going to be to throw a baseball off of a mound, 
I might as well start throwing off of a mound whenever, you know, whenever I can. So I think there's, it's interesting. I think they're trying to that do. makes, that makes sense. Even if we're not having this conversation. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I just, so I like, and ultimately what I think we're going to propose in our program is that like, we are comfortable with mound throwing at any point. If the athlete stays within the prescribed velocity range, like if you can control for velocity, then it, then we don't really care. And then the, the athlete and the coach can kind of decide when they want, because if I'm an athlete that's playing for a pitching coach that doesn't want me on the mound at less than hundred percent, like that's when I'm going to get on the mound. And that's fine. That's not wrong. It's, you know, it comes down to personal preference. Um, but I would, I kind of lean towards the idea that like, why not get used to the slope? I've heard it described. Somebody, somebody went all the way out to like huge long toss. They're at hundred percent in their return to throw program. And then they got on the mound and he said, he felt like he was stepping off of a cliff because he hadn't been on a slope in so long. Yeah. And, and additionally you get kids that like get so amped up, right? It's a psychological thing that like, well, I have to feel really, really good before I get on the mound again. And now it's this big event that I'm going to get on the mound again. And it's like, why don't you just get on the mound from the start and slowly work up and, and progress from there. So ultimately I don't like, I don't have a great answer. It's, it's a matter of like a feel and another, another opportunity within our program for individualization and adjustability to like what the athlete and the coach thinks is right. Um, but it's, I, I also don't like the fact that, you know, we wait nine weeks in the traditional throwing program to get on the mound and then get on the mound at 50%. Like I'm interested because the underlying theme of what I'm hearing is momentum, right? Like shuffle fire momentum, you know, seems to be a safer throw, especially for what I feel that's personal for me. Um, and then on the mound, what you're trying to do, create momentum, right? And so if you can create momentum using the mound and then throw it, it sounds like it's going to be a little bit more efficient and less stressful if you can not drag and stay within these ranges of motion. So, okay. So if you're going to be, let's say you're going to be extreme, on a guy. So how early are you getting him on the mound? So that's the thing is like, I pro realistically, I'm not going to put a guy on a slope on day one, probably. Um, I just, for the sake of not looking like a crazy person, but I don't think that there's a reason to be uncomfortable with it. If, if you're going to control for velocity, um, it's, it's just, it's just a feel thing. If you can control for velocity and if you, especially if you've got a motor sleeve on where you know what torque exposure is, like, I don't care if a, if a kid is getting seven or eight Newton meters of torque exposure at a very low end, um, game level torque is probably like in the seventies or eighties. So if somebody is getting like a seven, I don't, I, I'm not going to be worried about it. Um, so I wouldn't put them on in the first week, but I don't think there's a reason to, to like make it this big event. Uh, and, and just kind of transition them, you know, along the way. So that's not a great answer, but it will depend on the athlete. It will depend on, you know, what they're working on within their return to throw and, and all that stuff. Well, I will say it's, it's funny that anybody has a really strong opinion one way or the other. And then I'm just looking at myself when I say this, because, um, it's just so hard to tell. I mean, we, going into this, we are like, Wes is like, I'm going to, you're going to, you guys are going to answer this question. I'm going to say the opposite of what you say, because we don't know. And you yeah. can take both sides of this. And I think that that's, that's so a good critical. way to answer too. Like that's a, that's, you know, 
Yeah, congratulations. You're taking a very scientific approach. And I don't know is, is like an acceptable answer, you know, like especially yeah. when you're going through it, you know? Yeah, and especially like, yeah, when there's not necessarily a good answer. And I think it's really important. Like I haven't been super shy about throughout this whole process saying like, I don't know the answer or I screwed that up. Like the first, the first time I mapped out the program, I had screwed up the formulas and I had to go back. Like I had to, I wrote a whole blog post about going back and changing the formulas and remapping out the, the one day workload. And I did all of this. I put it, I documented it all and I haven't documented this part yet, but when I remade the program again for the guy that's going through it right now, I had to go back to the original, like, because I'm figuring it out along the way. Like yeah. it's, so it's, you know, that's, there's, no, that's guide. What happens with there's no guide to this, you know, I, I, it's right. great. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. It's a work in progress. I, I, I just thought of something that, and, and you're going to, hopefully you can help me with this, but um, there's John, a debate. I don't know if you saw this. We, we have like 10 more minutes, by the way. Okay, perfect. But that's, perfect. yeah, we'll be good. Um, so uh, with MODIS, uh, with your findings or, or your experience with it, I had it a while ago, uh, threw the sensor out. Um, I got to get reach out to them, see if we can get another sleeve um, and a sensor going with it, because I think that would be great. Um, but that being said, have you noticed a difference with the MODIS between um, these different throwing ideas, right? Baseball, towel drill, dry throw, and plyo ball. Have you been able to see any of those? Um... Short answer is no. Uh, I haven't. I haven't done. I've only thrown baseballs with it on uh, since I. I shouldn't say that. Since I've known what the heck I'm doing with it, I've only thrown baseballs with it on. When I, I first got one back in the fall just to try to learn about it. And I would just put it on and throw a bunch of stuff just to like get used to even looking at the data, but I didn't know what any of it meant at that point. Um, so that's probably somewhere in the near future. As I get further along with this protocol, one of the next things I want to test is like overweight and underweight throws and getting into just kind of what those things look like. And, and ultimately what that will come down to the reason for doing that will be like torque exposure. Uh, yeah. like, and, and this will actually lead into another question I'm grappling with that I think I know your guys' response to, but I think it's worth us discussing. Um, but with like maximum distance long toss, for example. So a lot of studies have, a lot, studies suggest that if you get over 150 or 180 feet, you're like really spiking the torque. You mentioned uh, Randy Sullivan had, had talked about the problem with long toss being that it puts a lot of stress on the shoulder. And the good thing is that it puts a lot of stress on the shoulder. Um, so like how much is good and at what point do you stop? So like when we're putting together this program, we don't really talk about distance that much other than the, you know, the athlete's going to move back with their velocity, but should we have a, a distance cap? Should we say you can move back as far as you want up to X distance? Um, so I guess, would you guys, would you guys consider capping long toss distance or where, where do you guys fall on long toss distance generally? Can I, can I lead? Go ahead. Okay. This is the one thing that jumps out to me is that the pattern of throwing up is everything. Okay. So we're going back to the mound and the slope. I don't know exactly what the degree of the mound is. Do you guys? No, but I should. I I think so, it's anyway, so let, it's let's like just one or one and a half inch slope from a certain amount. Right. So let's just say it's like 30 degrees. Is that crazy? Yeah. I think probably 15, 
15? Yeah, I think 15 is more likely. Okay, so let's say it's 15, okay? I think that the average game of long toss should get to something around 45 degrees, okay? And so I'm more interested in how do we how do we get a gauge on that? Because the reason that I like that is the the loading patterns of the, the shoulder almost always improve the higher the projectile is. And it's and and again, this I don't have any evidence behind this. This is just me. I don't have any written evidence. This oh, we, is just my experience it. with it. Yeah, we I, we've seen you know, it for sure. I agree. So so when I have kids that throw two downhill, they end up having loading pattern issues earlier, right? They tran they shift their weight too soon. Um, so I know John is going to talk more about the max distance stuff. So I'm just get, saying where I go is I wonder if there is a a way to um, like. Can you can you can you play with torque? Can you get kids to land a little bit more up? Can you if if they throw the ball? Uh, this is another way to think about it. Do you know how many kids it's hard to make them throw a pop up to themselves? You know how many people can't do that, and and so little things like that to pair with this. Like what is too high with the shoulders? What you know? Can you can you draw parameters into that, and then and then measure that in some way? Whether it's slow motion video or I, I don't know, but that's where my head goes because I just think that there's, I don't know, that's just where my head goes. John, talk a little bit more about the max part, because I don't so, know how to uh, say that. This is my you know, favorite part. Uh, Weston, you and I have talked about this, about Alan Yeager, and we're, we're a little bit more in the Jaeger style of, of long toss camp with what we feel. But um, this is how I, I like to explain it to guys, especially when we go long toss for the first time. Let's say you and I are going to go long toss, Weston. This is what I'll say. Let's go as far as you can. Right. And we're not going to count anything until we get there. Right. And then as when you get there, you need to make a conscious decision and decide what your endurance level is. And each throw that you make at that distance, that's what we're going to count. We're only going to count those maximal distance throws. What, what I see with guys like Weston with you and me, you're probably going to be there for two or three throws. And that's where I think people make the mistake is it should be more of a 10 to 15 throws, giving yourself a little bit more of a break, using more momentum, trying to get a little bit more of a shuffle into it so you can stay out there. Because, you know, I think that velocity and distance is a learned thing. I think it's a it's a feeling that you learn, especially with the feedback when you get when either the ball doesn't make it or you miss left to the right. You know, it, it's if, if you can learn how to throw the ball at that 45 degree angle, like you're talking about the things that really, really are crazy to us is is how like seamless the the momentum transition goes with guys when they are long tossing upwards where they, everything sequences really, really well. They get into these really cool positions and then the layback and the timing that happens with these guys when they're throwing up, it seems like they understand that it is a safer throw to throw upwards and long toss. So you just get more out of them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, I think the huge benefit of that max distance of really just letting yourself like get the momentum and let it fly is the like building athleticism portion of it that you're just letting the athlete kind of express their throwing motion, however, like is best for them, however, whatever is most efficient for them. My, I guess where I get hung up on it, because in my, that's how I've always prescribed long toss. I've always been like, uh, get out as far as you can hang out there. You know, like you don't have to compress or pull down, but you should get out and let it, you know, open up and all that. And like, even when I play catch, like that's what I like to do. Uh, but the more that I've looked at stuff, I just wonder, Obviously, you want to expose the shoulder to more. Well, I guess maybe it's not obvious. But to me, 
you'd want to expose the, the shoulder, the elbow to a little bit more torque than they're going to experience in the game. Like you don't want the game to be the most stressful thing that they're going to do, but how much more? Like if I go out and let's just say for the sake of, you know, round numbers, I throw in game, I'm throwing at 80 Newton meters of torque, like probably 120 Newton meters of torque is absurdly too high. Like I don't need to go 150% higher. Do I need to go 10% higher, 5%? Like, so trying to decide like what amount more of in-game torque you want to expose the arm to and then seeing where that is because now you can now you don't have to guess you can see like okay if i throw 300 feet i'm at game level torque okay great go a little bit further but but you can kind of gauge based on that and especially in a return to throw i have a question could you could you go i want you on one throw to achieve the highest torque in newton meters possible I mean, you could ask them to throw it as hard as they can. Yeah. Like a ma- just a max effort throw. So let's, you know, like, let's say we're, we're healthy enough to be able to like suggest something like that. Right. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like maybe in game is 80, but they have the potential to create 110 Newton meters of force um, or torque, excuse me, or whatever it is. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. Torque, I'm, yeah. I'm curious if, if, if helping them realize where their ceiling is, um, might be helpful. And maybe that's like a really uncomfortable, bad thing. I don't know. I, this is, I, I've never even thought about that before. Yeah. And, and I don't know, like, again, that we keep coming back to a common theme. Like, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, but I, well, but I think that you could probably find a sweet spot out there, right. Of like, if this is your in-game torque, you know, this is, this is something that we're interested in training at and how you get there then goes back to like are we going to use underweighted balls to get there are we going to use like are we going to use long toss to get there because if you're looking at just torque exposure like you can find different ways to get to these training zones um and and then i think it gets really interesting because then there's even more questions so it's like that's i think what i was asking is vocabulary to say that so torque exposure (laughs) then i what i was trying to say is i'm it's not the volume right it's it's like can you expose them to one throw that is so they have a point of reference well yeah i think that there's there's value in that i think there's value in like a baseline testing and then working some programming off of it um but also like building endurance at a certain level like you don't want you know you don't want your athlete to only be able to get to their in-game level of torque once you want to build endurance at that level no i was Um, saying past yeah and but but to the same point like you probably don't i think it's worth testing that but if you're gonna you're going to pick a spot 10 or 5% higher and say, I see what build, you're saying. build some endurance there. And again, I, this is, I'm spitballing. Like, I don't know for sure. Um, hopefully I'll have better answers. If you, if we talk again in six weeks, hopefully I'll have better answers just like I did this time compared to the last time we talked, but it's please, all like, please come let, let's do this, you know, once a month, at least, if you want to come on and update us on your situation and stuff, this would be, I think this is phenomenal work, man. You're, you're doing some, cause like basically what, Correct me if I'm wrong, right? But the idea of what I just said um, about like getting as far as you can and you know figuring that out, right? You're trying to quantify that idea of like what that is, right? And in a long toss situation, is that a, is that yeah, objectify it your, you know, or objectify it or whatever yeah. it is with your you know with your idea of your efficient you know on ramping situation programming. Basically, the, and the the max distance thing will will fit in somewhere on the the back end stages of this yeah. program once the but or in like training a healthy athlete too like this is programming that will become relevant across the board. Um, I think that, 
and I'd have to go back and look at the studies. I think that the problem that you do end up exposing just to higher levels of torque when your shoulders start to tilt, like when you get to those higher throws. But again, like that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It's just it's just that you shouldn't probably be guessing. Like you should probably know. And that's a, a common theme with what I've been doing is like if you measure it, then you don't have to guess anymore. You can know that like, well, in game, he's this and long toss is this. Uh, and you can and you can kind of set people up so that you know where their torque levels are and what what their torque exposure is on a given day. And I feel like it helps you know what's the difference between when I know and when I can't know. And that, I think, might be the more valuable thing at all because it just yeah, being able to decide what you can and cannot know is so helpful, you know. So anyway, you, you have you have to get running here. So yeah, Doug, I, yeah. You, let, let's let's wrap this up. We're, we're going to have Wes on plenty more times. Um, so um, it's Mill City throwing. Um, what are your Instagram and, uh, handles, yeah. and, and then we'll uh, sign off. So MillCityThrowing.com is where the blog is. So that's where I've got like long form writing about week to week and different topics that come up. Um, at Coach underscore Germain is where I'm putting most of the on Twitter is where I'm putting most of the information there, and then at Mill City Throwing and at Coach Germain on Instagram. So those I'm just kind of documenting it in a number of different places, but but that's long form. Is anybody form. else doing this? Uh, I'm sure they are. I, I don't know where it's being documented, but I'm sure. Okay. Like I know there are people that are are grappling with these things and trying to find ways to use um, modus sleep in this. I will say I think it's probably less common in the return to throw protocol space, like because there's a lot of low hanging fruit and performance here too. And being able to train right. more efficiently, so which I'll be transitioning to eventually. But the the first thing that came to yeah, mind. I'm excited was, about that. That that's the the information with that, especially you know thinking about applying that to like how do you throw 400 feet? You know, like there's there might be a better answer or a way to do it than every three days go throw. Yeah, um, and like and how much can I throw? Maybe what what you might find is that like on a given training day or on a given game day that you can actually throw more than traditional knowledge would say if you have chronic workload built up. Um, that was one of the, the talks that Brian Conger gave at the ABCA, I think it was 2018. He talked about how he was able to get more innings out of his scholarship arms because he used the modus sleeve to track the readiness. And you build up chronic workload, you track it, you know you're not guessing, and he was able to get more innings out of his guys. So like, that's, from a performance standpoint, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit as well. It's, it's just, a huge thing you know, for a coach and get your horses, you know, 10% more output. Yep. And, awesome. and in high leverage situations and know, and know when they're ready, not, Hey, how's your arm feel? Cause everybody here is going to say it feels great. And it yeah, might be hanging out by it. Yeah, it's exactly. You, you can't trust the pitcher. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, nope. just like so, a fart. Just like a three, one change. Up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, but so, I really yeah. appreciate you guys having me on. No, yeah, that's what's just about to wrap up right here. I appreciate it, man. This has been great. Um, I wish we had more time with you today. I've got way more, you know, I've got the pad of questions right here for you. So this is this has been awesome. Thanks again, man. Um, you know, I can't wait to have you on again. Um, you guys go follow um, Weston, MillCityThrowing.com. I just pulled up his website. It looks great. Um, you follow along. If anybody has any questions, you can ask us. We can relay it to him or you can just hit him up directly. So, Weston, thanks yeah, again, man. I appreciate it. We got to get you a hat eventually. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna All right. Stuff out, so. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. It was great. It was great talking with you guys. You right, too, man. You. Good luck. Take it easy, buddy. All right.